0: The Door County Pulse Podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Door County Pulse Podcast. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, editor of the Peninsula Pulse. And today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. It came across my email as a lot of Matt Cullen's press releases generally do. Matt Cullen is the senior communication specialist for WPS and WE Energies. And this one was delivering the new nesting season report. It reported about Iggy. Who is one of 11 chicks born during another successful nesting season for WPS and WE Energies? And the details of this were laid out in a newly released 2023 Peregrine Falcon Nesting Season Report. A total of 444 Peregrine Falcons have been born at WPS and WE Energy power plants since the program began in 1992. That means 20% of all peregrine falcons born in Wisconsin during that time hatched at WPS or WE energy facilities, helping the endangered species escape possible extinction. So this report was beautiful, and it had photos of the nesting sites and statistics about all four of the sites, Oak Creek, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Port Washington, Wisconsin, and Rothschild Wisconsin. I don't know a lot about peregrine falcon's nesting at power plants or buildings and this report really illuminated a lot of that. And the person who wrote it is Greg Septon, who is a peregrine falcon manager and researcher. So I have both Greg and Matt on the line today. Welcome to you both.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Deborah.
1: And so what we're going to start first I think Matt with you. I did not know that WPS and We Energies had a program like this. When did you start it and why?
2: So this is a program that we've had in place since 1992. And it was actually something that Greg had approached us about as part of his efforts to really help Peregrine Falcons recover here in the state of Wisconsin. As you had mentioned before, and as I'm sure Greg will will get into more detail on, Peregrine Falcons were in an endangered status. Uh, back in 1992, they were endangered both here in the state of Wisconsin, and actually they they at one point were endangered nationwide just because of the, the species uh, kind of having dwindled because of a few different factors that had happened over the years. So Greg had approached us again back in 1992 with this idea to place nest boxes at our power plants and at our generation facilities, because they are structures that are very similar to the natural habitats of peregrine falcons. They're very high up on the landscape and they also are oftentimes near the food sources, large waterways that can provide food for peregrine falcons. And so since 1992, uh, we've been able to support those peregrine falcon recovery efforts as part of our commitment to build a bright, sustainable future for the customers and the communities that we serve. And so since that time, as you mentioned, we've had really just a a very successful track record and a very successful program that's been put into place. As you mentioned, 444 peregrine Peregrine Falcon chicks have now been born, named, and banded at our facilities in the past 31 years. So it's a program that we're very proud of and one that's continuing to help Peregrine Falcons recover here in the state of Wisconsin.
1: Okay, so now when you approach WPS, did they say you want to do what?
3: Yeah, it was actually back, I believe it was in 1991. I went and I met actually with the president of, uh, at that time, of Wisconsin Electric here in Milwaukee. His name was Charlie Guineer. And uh, I sat down with them and I told them my idea. The idea was based on the fact that peregrine falcons will travel shorelines during the spring and fall migration. They will also travel shorelines when they're looking for mates. And the western shore of Lake Michigan is a major migration route for all sorts of birds, but raptors in particular. And I thought, well, if we can get nest boxes up on every tall human-built structure along that 200 plus coastline or the shoreline of Lake Michigan, Maybe we'll have something in line here where peregrines can adapt to these sites and uh, we can build a population along the lakefront. Well, I didn't get an answer yes right away, but shortly afterwards I did. And uh, within a few months afterwards, we began putting up nest boxes. And as I've said before, there were a lot of sleepless nights hoping that we'd get birds to come back and I hadn't sold the company of Bill Goods. But uh, the next spring, uh, we had a pair actually move into a nest box that we built up in Sheboygan, which wasn't a we Energy site, but it was another power plant. And after that, uh, the boxes began filling up. So it worked very, very well. And today, uh, we have over a dozen active nest sites along the western shore of Lake Michigan. And the beauty of that is these birds can go up and down the lakefront. They can find mates. There are the nest boxes on all these tall, human-built structures. Which are again along the shoreline, and these human built structures, such as power plants, tall buildings, grain elevator complexes, bridges, etc., are nothing more than human built cliffs from a peregrine's perspective. They're high up in the sky, they've got their great vantage points. There's plenty of food in the cities, there's a lot of prey that also migrates up and down the lake shore. So, all of those elements came together and worked, and today we have a very stable population in the state of Wisconsin, but in particular, we have a very stable and very productive population along the western shore of Lake Michigan.
1: I was surprised to learn that buildings were the number one habitat for their nesting sites. You had in your report that 40% were nesting in buildings.
3: Yeah, it's it's what's happened. And we're looking at an environment and a world that wasn't present 100 years ago. You know, Historically, peregrines nested. All around the country, but in Wisconsin here, historically, they nested along the cliffs overlooking the Mississippi River, the Wisconsin River, as well as the cliffs on the Door Peninsula. And we probably had between 20 and 24 successful nests. That's just an estimate historically. Well, once the, the population was extirpated uh, due to the effects of eggshell thinning and DDT, they were absent from the state for close to oh, well over 20 years. And in in the meantime, you know, between the 30s and 40s and today, we've built a lot of very tall buildings, large bridges. There are large elevator, grain elevator complexes along these waterways. And again, it's from a peregrine's perspective, these are just cliffs. These mm-hmm. are perfect sites to nest. They're perfect vantage points to hunt from. And as long as we provide them with nest boxes and give them a little space during the nesting season, They do extremely well, and they've been very, very productive sites.
1: Okay, so that is just one of the pieces of information in this report that Greg had put together for Wisconsin nest site types and production. It has buildings as the number one nesting site, and then natural cliffs, and then the power plants. So, how high up are we talking about that these nest boxes are put at the power plants, and where are they?
3: There's 40 nests in the state. Over 40 nests in the state last year. And I could provide you with a map, if you'd like, or a list of all the sites. Well,
1: I'm thinking more like the physical space, like what physical structure are they on at a power plant? I can envision a building and where they might be in a building.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Power plants. We have the nest boxes that are basically inside some of the chimneys at these sites. Well, in fact, I worked with the engineers at the old Pleasant Prairie site when they were designing the new chimney at the facility I worked with them so that when the concrete was poured, there was an opening left in the wall of the chimney. We then built a nest box inside the chimney. There's an elevator that goes up to the catwalk at the 300 foot level. We built the box inside, and peregrines were nesting there. We've also had boxes that were mounted to the catwalks on various chimneys. We have boxes at power plants that are mounted to the parapet walls on rooftops. Huh. Whatever wherever we can find a site that's there, a location that's going to be suitable, we'll use that. And we've used different types of different sites, depending on what we have to work with.
1: Okay. Now we have a few nesting pairs of peregrine falcons in Door County and they are at cliff sites. You know, one is at a quarry, I think a couple are at a quarry and over on Rock Island, you probably know a little bit more about that than I do, Greg. But when I was doing a story on their presence here, because they did they did impact a construction project. Once they were discovered, the construction project had to be delayed for their nesting season, which apparently is March through July is what they had on their permit. But Ridge Staphan, a zoologist conservation biologist with the DNR told me that falcons tolerate human activity as long as it's not above them. Is that accurate? So is that why they are so high up? That they don't want any activity uh, above them.
3: They're far more sensitive to activity above the nest than they are activity below the nest. And then again, historically, they nested on these, these cliffs along rivers because they were, were again they were secure. In many cases, the, they were free from predators such as raccoons. They were they were sites where they weren't being bothered basically. And when you look at a nest site, look at a cliff. If you get, if if you try to approach it from beneath it from the ground. They're looking down. They're looking. They can see you, and it does. It, it causes more of a problem. Rich is right in one sense that peregrines can tolerate activity. Stop for a second. Just imagine a power plant. How noisy they can be at times. Yeah. Peregrines adapt to this. They they do very well. I mean, they see people every day. They see trucks and cranes and, and vehicles coming and going, and, and they adapt to it. Having said that, they don't all all of a sudden have all this activity occur at one time. Mm. When there's a construction project or new cycles in. Pair of falcons will show up, or the one male will show up, he'll attract a female. And these activities happen slowly. I mean, I've been involved in construction projects at power plants where they're major construction projects, and the pair have div- nested without a hitch. And the reason they did so is because all of a sudden a truck comes in, some scaffolding is put up, a crane is put up. It doesn't all happen at once, it happens over a period of time, slow progression. And as that happens, they adapt to it. And again, as long as there's no direct threat right. Uh, above the nest, or directly in front of it, or you know, relatively close, they keep on nesting without a hitch, and there's not been one issue.
1: Okay. Now, Greg, you're also the founder of the Wisconsin Peregrine Falcon Recovery Project. I believe you founded that in 1986 or 1987. Why Peregrine Falcons? What, what got you so interested in these birds?
3: They're nature's most perfect flying machine. They're at the top of the food chain. They're the fastest uh, animal on the planet. They're tremendous parents. They're phenomenal hunters. They've got charisma. I never get tired of watching them. So I guess that kind of sums it up. And I've <laughs> always been interested in peregrine since I was a kid. In fact, I used to daydream in an English class during high school about putting a dome over the quarry in Racine and trying to release peregrine to getting into the nest in the quarry. So wow. it goes back quite a ways.
1: Okay. So they were a federally endangered species. And as you were talking about, DDT was the pesticide, was the primary culprit of that. And so they were a federally endangered species. They were declassified in 1999, but certain states like Wisconsin still listed as endangered. Is that correct?
3: As it stands today, yes. Okay. And I know that there's been some talk about reviewing that status lately. Those are all regulatory issues that uh, be coordinated by the state. And again, every state is different. Some states have delisted. Some states have downlisted from endangered to threatened or come up with a different category. The bottom line is historically peregrines were probably one of the rarest raptors anywhere hmm. in wisconsin again if we had you know a couple dozen nesting pairs they were limited to these cliffs overlooking the rivers and the door county bluffs etc and again two dozen pairs of anything is, is a small number so even if uh, today again, we have over 40 pairs nesting which has been tremendous we're very successful having said that 40 pairs of anything is still a small number so any way you look at it going forward and forward, they're going to have to have some sort of classification that will provide a little extra protection or a little give them an edge so they can continue to prosper.
1: Okay. Now you created these sites for them at the power plants, got permission, put the nests up, then they came. So what other components are there to the management and research that you do for the falcons?
3: As far as management goes, these boxes are cleaned every fall. Uh, They have they nest in a a four-inch deep layer of washed, dried pea gravel. We keep that clean. If that gets dirty and it gets wet, you get the bacteria field that builds up. You also have reduced fertility or reduced hatchability in the eggs. So keeping those boxes maintained, uh, they also require maintenance every year. And uh, as far as management goes, I also work with the employees on these sites to work around the nesting season when it comes to scheduling any work on rooftops, any work that's going to be done any, anywhere near the nest boxes.
2: Okay. Uh, so
3: I, I, I I'm in constant contact with these people at these sites to make sure that during the nesting season, peregrines are given the space they need to successfully nest. How high they up are they? At the power plants they're probably up, uh, every power plant different, I'd say you know a couple hundred feet up. Okay. Uh, having said that, we're learning every, every year. We had a site, uh, that has been active about three years now, Up in Kaukana, I've never seen anything like it. I've never read anything about a situation like this. There's what's called a weep hole. It's about a 14 square inch hole that goes back into the canal wall on the Fox River in Kaukana. And that weep hole is no more than about four feet above the level of the river, the the water Hmm. level. And they're nesting in that weep hole
1: interesting so
3: it's below the road level so it's a bizarre situation but it's in a spot where no one's going to bother them
1: it's
0: Mm -hmm. a
3: recessed location it's protected from the elements and uh, the birds have been doing great there so they do like high places they do like nesting on on anything that gives them a a vantage point where they can hunt from the uh, weep hole in the canal at Kaukana nest in that hole however they Hunt and perch on the adjacent bridge. Mm. That's their vantage point they can hunt. Okay. So all the ingredients came together there at that site. That works.
1: So then you actively manage the nests. And then how do I, I notice that there are lots of photos, lots of webcam photos in your report. So are there webcams that are observing every one of these nests?
3: No, not everyone, unfortunately. I'd love to see webcams at every site because it makes management a lot easier. Sure. We energies and, and, and Wisconsin Public Service have four of their sites. In fact, we're in the midst right now of installing new webcams at all of these sites. So I'm looking forward to that this spring. But uh, the one beauty about having webcams is when you've got you know, 25, 30, 40 sites and you're trying to manage banding to get these young birds banded, there's a, a narrow window, 18 to 22, 23 days maximum for banding. And any younger than that, you can't accurately sex them in the band. The males are smaller than the females, so they take a smaller band. Mm. Any later than that, and you take a chance at frightening them out of the nest box. Oh. So when you've got a, you, if you know when the eggs are laid and you know when they're hatched, You can more readily, more easily schedule that critical four or five day window for banding. And when you're banding at 25 or 30 sites, trying to get that window locked in at each site successfully, it's like herding cats every spring. Hmm. But having said that, it gets done. But it's like dominoes. If if, if one site decides, oh, I can't do it that afternoon or we've got something else coming up, I may have to reschedule a half a dozen other sites to accommodate that one site if I can. And the other thing is, during banding, during the banding season, I'll be driving three, four, five thousand miles hmm. to get all these birds banded. every day. Wow! So coordinating that is a lot easier with webcams.
1: Yeah. So how do you reach into the nest and grab these chicks and band them and put them back, and not disturb the parents?
3: You will disturb the parents. We take about a half hour out of the lives of these young falcons. I've never, in 35 years, I've never lost a falcon ever. I've never injured or harmed a bird. So. Huh. You go in, you, uh, it's usually a two- or three-person job. I have one person hold a broom over us. Peregrines will generally, if they're going to strike, they'll generally strike the tallest objects, so we give them a corn husk broom they can, they can hit. It won't hurt them, and it will protect us. Okay. And while that's going on, I reach in, I, I, I pick up the young carefully, I put them into an air kennel, we transfer them into the building, they're laid out on the table one by one, we band them. Uh, I used to take blood samples for DNA. We're no longer doing that, but each bird is banned their names. This also provides an opportunity for the employees at each site to attend the banning to get by, and they name the falcons. Hmm. So we get a lot of corporate and staff buy in that way, and it's something they all look forward to every year. After the birds are banned, they're taken back up on the roof, and they're put back in the nest box. The nest box is closed up. At that point, they're about three weeks from fledging, and uh, we continue watching on webcams to make sure they get off safely. And that's about it.
1: Okay. So then the parents will return to the nest. So it doesn't matter if humans have touched them.
3: No, not at all. I've, I've never, ever, ever had an adult peregrine a nest site. Okay. It's never happened.
1: So a peregrine falcon, you had listed some of their characteristics at the beginning. And one of those is that they are great parents. The flying speeds is incredible. What, 40 to 65 miles per hour?
3: Flat out. And in a stoop or a dive, it's where it's well over 230 miles an hour.
1: Wow, that's crazy. And that's as stupor a dive as when they're, is they're diving for prey. So they will actually, if you're, if you're banding, then they will go after you, a human, that is going into their nests, if you don't give them a decoy?
3: Yeah, they will. Having said that, I've banded over 1,400 peregrines in the last 30 years, and I've only been struck by peregrines twice, maybe three times, And I will say that all three times it was my own fault Mm. for not paying attention. For someone who is not in tune with with peregrine behavior and if they're up on a rooftop and working on something close to a nest site and and not aware of these situations, yeah, they can get hit. We've had people hit before, but we try to eliminate those possibilities by, again, managing these sites, working with employees, letting them know what's going on, when they can go up there, when they can't go up there. And it's been very, very successful. Mm. And again, I like From a personal standpoint, I love working with peregrines, but I also love seeing how human beings adapt to this and how we allow peregrines into our lives and how they actually become very important to us. So from an environmental standpoint, from an educational standpoint, it's been tremendous.
0: The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kewanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers.
1: And it sounds like you're getting additional improvements to the program. So it doesn't sound like it's, it sounds like it's, it's growing as opposed to being cut back.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely.
1: Now with this banding program that you have, what do you band for? What is the purpose of that?
3: We band peregrines so we can follow them for their lifetimes. We find out how long they live. We find out what kills them. We find out what kind of problems they get into we can determine longevity. We can determine lifetime production, how many eggs they laid, how many young they produced, how many different mates they had. So from a biological standpoint, we can learn an awful lot. We can also learn how far they travel from where they're born to where they eventually nest. We've had some birds that have traveled great distances. We've had a bird that was from 48th Wall Street in Manhattan, I don't know, I guess it was. And that bird nested in Sheboygan. Huh. Uh, we've had birds from wisconsin nest in ontario and in uh, downtown toronto so they they will travel great distances the name peregrine means wanderer having said that most males nest 100 miles or less from where they're born most females nest 200 miles or less from where they're born but again why do we ban these birds i can tell you a quick story going back to actually a bird from green bay back in 1996 I banded four baby peregrines at the nest box on what was the old polium power plant, which is now gone. Again, 50 to 70% of these birds don't make it beyond their first year. There's a relatively high first year mortality rate, Mm. which is nature's way of ensuring the very best birds return to breed and pass on those genes. Mm. All the young took off Uh, in the fall of that year, November. I got an email from a colleague in Indiana, a bird that we'd named Atlanta was found injured with a broken wing. She'd been shot in Indiana. She was rescued and sent up to the Raptor Center at the University of Minnesota. The wing was pinned. She was kept up there the rest of the winter and until the following spring. The wing was healed. She was flight conditioned, so she was ready to be released. They sent her back to me. She was supposed to be arriving at the airport here in Milwaukee early one morning in May. I was going to be taking her to the Racine County Courthouse and releasing her on the roof. There was a lone male. Long story short, she missed or wasn't on the next three or four flights that day. She finally arrived later in the afternoon, later that evening. I could not take her to Racine because of severe thunderstorm warnings and hail and everything. So I took her home, took her out of the air kennel, gave her a quail to eat, put her on the back of a chair in my office, and got up early in the morning, put her back in the air kennel, took her down to Racine, released her on the roof of the courthouse, and she took off like a bat out of hell across the Lake Michigan. I thought I would never see her again, and that was it. The next Spring and next next January, I got an email from a colleague down in, in uh, Indiana again, Michigan City, Indiana. She was identified at a power plant in Michigan City, Indiana. They read her band numbers. That was cool. Later that same spring, she showed up at the Buzzard Prairie Power Plant in Kenosha County. She landed on the catwalk when I was inspecting the nest box. I just used to have to do this the person long before webcams. She was there. I read her band number. It was again. It was Atlanta. She nested there that year. Produced two young. One uh, had a broken leg in the nest box that we took out, and the other youngster uh, was killed after it fled. So Atlanta moved off. Uh, Oftentimes, if they're successful, they'll stay at the same nest site for many, many, many years. If they don't succeed that first year, it's common that they go off and try to find a new site, which is what she did. Mm. The following spring, there was a tremendous battle. Some of these peregrines in the spring will battle to the death. There was a tremendous battle at the Oak Creek power plant between two females, the resident female and another female that at that point I had not yet identified. Hmm. In the end, the resident female was found dead. She was killed during the battle, and this new female took over the site. At that point, uh, I climbed a 250 to 300-foot ladder to get up to where the catwalk was on the outside of the, the chimney. And while I was up there, the Falker came in and landed, and I read her band number, and it was Atlanta. Atlanta <laughs> netted there successfully that year. She lived to be 14 years old and produced 41 Young, and I banded every one of her offspring. I know where a lot of her offspring went. That's wow. why we band.
1: That is a crazy story. I have so many questions. <laughs> that is like Epic. I mean, that is really
3: uh,
1: very interesting.
3: I'll just say, I I couldn't have told that story if I hadn't taken a half hour off with a band on that bird's bike.
1: Right, absolutely. So the females fight, not the males?
3: The males will also fight for territories.
1: That's interesting. I've not heard of females fighting to the death before, at least not ever heard anybody say that part of it. So that's a very good justification for banding the birds and being able to keep track of them. I noticed in your report also that there are some instances where you're able to log, you know, why they did die. One crashed into a window, one of your banded birds. And and so you are tracking their lives as much as you can. I think I also read that you saw one in the wild and you don't normally see it after you band it beyond the one that you're you're just talking about. So was there a more recent one that you were able to pick up in the wilds that you had banded at one of these power plants?
3: Actually, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting to say that in the last week, uh, I was contacted by the bird banding lab. Uh, I had a bird banding recovery. One of the birds I banded was spotted. This one in particular was recovered down in Nicaragua uh, in December, and the individual found it was being attacked by two caracaras, which are relatively large scavengers. He rescued it, took it home. I don't think he's any real knowledge as far as rehab work goes, but he gave it some chicken to eat and uh, gave it some shelter for a couple of weeks and then released it. And this is a young uh, female that we banded last year at the Port Washington power plant. So its first migration, it ended up into Nicaragua, and again, he released it, so there's a chance this bird could show up in Wisconsin or anywhere else here in the upper Midwest next spring. We don't know. I'll, I'm certainly going to be looking for it, but it may not make it, but the bottom line is we know it went to Nicaragua, and again, if we hadn't taken the time off to band it, we wouldn't have known that either.
1: Do they normally migrate that far south?
3: I've been trying to monitor that as well, and I've got some some thoughts on that. And generally speaking, peregrines don't go any further than they need to to find a nest site and a mate. However, first-year birds, before they have a mate, before they have a territory, when they're less than a year old, I think they go where the wind blows. And uh, that first year, we've had uh, a couple of years prior, I think three or four years prior to that, we had a bird in in Venezuela from Wisconsin. So Mm. I think that first year, uh, a good number of these young head south. Far south, hmm. and I did a an overwintering survey a number of years ago, and all of the peregrines I documented overwintering in the upper Midwest, with the exception of two or three, were all adults. Which led me to the question: Where did all the young go? Yeah. <laughs> so these again that leads me to believe that a lot of these young head south. They had to places that uh, where people don't necessarily identify them, where they're not often recovered. So when we do get a recovery from Venezuela or Nicaragua, it, it's significant, and it it begins to piece together parts of the story or at least verify or justify some of the, the thoughts that I've had on where these birds do go.
1: Hmm. You've been studying them for such a long period of time. Are there any questions that are, you kind of hinted that that's one unanswered question in terms of what causes them, some of them to migrate so far south, but are there other unanswered questions about peregrine falcons?
3: I'd like to know where some of the adults go. We have a number of adults that are on territory year-round at these urban sites, but uh, some of the adults also migrate. We know that there was a male that nested on the north shore of Lake Superior on a cliff. His name was Yukon Jack, and every year he'd go down to Austin, Texas, and he'd be identified sitting on a building in downtown Austin. Then next spring, he'd go back to the north shore of Lake Superior. So Hmm. These birds do move around. The adults also migrate, but these getting an accounting of where they actually go, it's tough. It, ideally, it'd be nice to get satellite transmitters on 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 young in, in any given year and just find out what really happens. That would be a very, very expensive project, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it would answer a whole lot of questions very quickly.
1: Do they mate for life?
3: Peregrines will, as long as both adults survive, they're very, very tied to the sites. They have, they have a site affinity that they're, so as long as both adults survive, they'll continually return to the same nest mm. site. If one or the other is lost, the survivor will attract a new mate. But we've had some pairs that have been together for 10 or 12 or 13 years. So as long as the sites there and the adults survive, they're pretty tight.
1: Okay. Do you know how many nesting pairs are in Door County?
3: Let's see. We had, uh, there's one on Rock Island. We had two on Washington. We had one at Peninsula State Park and the one at the quarry. So there's probably five uh, in the last two or three years. We have as many as five. Okay. Uh, not every site produces young every year. Not every site is successful, but we have had nesting attempts at all of those sites.
1: Okay. So you say that you travel thousands of miles during the banding process, which certainly sounds valuable. Is there only one of you?
3: There's one of me, but I depend on the help of individuals at, at each one of the sites. Again, we try to get employee involvement staff involvement so that like during the off season in fact i just got an email earlier this week from a a fellow i work with up at the power plant in near portage the columbia generating station he just sent me a webcam image with one statement look who's back their adult female was was first spotted in the nest box up there this week so (laughs) uh keeping people on site involved makes it a lot easier when it comes time to band i don't do that alone employees help me i've got someone holding a broom i've got folks that help hold the birds while I'm gathering them. So involving individuals at each site is, is extremely important. It helps me, but I think more importantly, it buys input from the employees. You get buy-in. It becomes their project, and that's what I like Is I like to instill ownership.
1: Well, that's what, what attracts me to the story is that we do need electric power plants, and and this seems to be one of those purposes served that nobody would ever have anticipated when we first began building tall buildings and building these power plants. Well, it seems to me that you definitely need to teach somebody what it is that you're doing, Greg, because your research and management has been invaluable, as has the support that you're receiving from WPS and We Energies. I am curious if you are a nonprofit organization or if this is completely volunteer.
3: No, I run a small LLC and okay. I, I work as a business and I, I manage sites through that. And that allows me to make the money to pay for gas and, and material <laughs> and supplies and, and cover expenses. So right, but right. that seems to work for now. I would love to have someone come along and shares the same passion I do for Peregrines that would be willing to work for a few years and then move in and take over some of this because, I can't do it forever, then I, I again, would hope there'd be someone to come along that would feel the same way about these birds and, and want to get involved and, and help provide a, an even longer term future for them. Because as I mentioned, the, with a lot of these birds nesting on human built structures, we're going to need to have humans involved one way or another going forward. if We want to keep peregrines in our world. Sure. Uh, I certainly think it's, it's a valuable endeavor.
1: And they won't just do it on their own. Correct, or or will they say you're no longer doing it? Yeah,
3: they the peregrines will attempt nesting on human built structures whether we provide for them or not. Okay. If we don't provide that for them, their their nest success rate is going to go way down. If they start nesting on precarious ledges, the eggs could roll off. They could get caught in a bad storm. Uh, we could lose the site. If we're not working with people at these sites and peregrines show up, they could just be looked at as a nuisance. Someone could get struck inadvertently if they're trying to do work near a nest. So again, it's giving them, giving peregrines an opportunity to successfully nest and working around their nesting season with them. So that it's win-win. The peregrines get a place to nest. The folks that are providing a nest site uh, get some good positive news situations where there's oftentimes positive news. So uh, again, it should be a win-win situation. That's what I always try to pursue for everybody involved, the staff, the management, the birds. It's got to be a win-win.
1: Is there any danger of pirating if people know where the chicks in the nests are?
3: Uh, there's always that danger, but as a, a, that question is something in the past, and I've always told folks, if, if you can get into a power plant and get up on that roof and get through security, you're a better person than me. Okay. <laughs> the security at these sites is very, very tight. And these sites are so secure. that uh, And there's cameras everywhere. So the chance of that happening is, is slim to none.
1: So it's probably a greater chance on a rock wall in Washington Island. Now, these are valuable as chicks, oh, yeah. right?
3: Well, they've been valuable as chicks. Uh, I mean, there was, there was a black market years and years ago. And I'm sure that there are some people that will go out and, and try to rob chicks if they needed to or wanted to. Having said that, there are many many falconers in the country today that are breeding and producing cat, peregrine falcons in captivity mm. and it's far easier for a falconer or someone who wants to get a bird to get a permit and go to a breeder and get a bird you know it's, just, it's that option was never available until the last 25 30 years when the peregrines are being bred in captivity mm. much more readily
1: so they don't have to steal a hunting partner in the wild. They, they
3: don't know. <laughs> All right. right, right. Well, they're 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 far more easily available.
1: So this is a fascinating program, and thank you both for coming on to talk about it a little bit more. Is there a place where the public can go and view some of uh, the webcam footage that you have, Matt? Do you have that available for? people who go to
2: your webpage? Yes, that's a great question, Deborah. And each spring when we have peregrine falcons that return to our different nest boxes, uh, we do have live camera feeds that members of the public can tune into anytime throughout the day. Those are available on our website. That's wecenergygroup.com. Falcons, you can find links to the live web cameras during the nesting season. There, you can also go to our YouTube pages for both Wisconsin Public Service and We Energies as well, and you can find the live camera feeds there also. So, uh, and that's something that we are, are posting photos from, videos from throughout the nesting season so that we can make our customers aware and anyone who's really interested in falcons aware of how the nests are progressing, what is taking place, and then as as we've talked about previously, uh, when the banding takes place and, and when we have that opportunity to get to know these falcons a little bit more and provide them with their official names. So that is something that people can find each spring and then heading into uh, the early part of the summer as well.
0: All
1: right. So thank you both for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Debbie. Thank
0: you.
1: And you're listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald. And thank you, as always, for listening. Until next time.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. This podcast is produced by Miles Danhausen Jr. and edited by Rachel Lucas. If you want to help us continue to create more great episodes, just like this one, visit our website at doorcountypulse.com.